Hey there. Captain Roger from the Salvation Army's Grass Valley Corps. Thank you for hitting play. If you're willing, click on the like and subscribe buttons too. But that's enough video chat for one morning. Grace and peace to you all. Like most Northern Californians, I have spent much of the last 10 years eating smoke and dodging embers. If I wasn't worrying about evacuations, I was worrying about evacuees. We've all learned what happens when forest lands are not properly tended or when they aren't left to care for themselves the way that God originally set them up. Dried trees invite invasive bugs in to gnaw and lay eggs and they grow and begin to feed on the living. Nutrients in the soil get lost under downed trees and limbs and undergrowth begins to choke off even the healthiest seeming towers of life. Until at last, you're left with enough corruption in the forest that when the flames of judgment come sweeping through, they burn so hot and so fast that even well-defended plant life like sequoias or redwoods can't resist the heat, and they char through the inside, leaving nothing behind but a blackened shell here and a pile of ash there. When the conditions are right, Steps can be taken to eliminate the corruption, to, to kill or drive out the creeping invaders, to remove the dead wood and unwanted growth. A controlled burn could be set, cleansing fire that improves the health of the forest. It can clear the bad, opening up new space for proper growth and restoring nutrients to the ground to feed that growth. Fire isn't always bad. In fact, fire has been a symbol for the presence of God since early in our relationship to him. When he accepted God's covenant, Abraham saw a vision of God as a burning oven and a lit torch leading the way. Moses first encountered the Lord as a bush burning in the desert. When the Israelites left Egypt, God led them out by appearing as a pillar of fire. On Mount Sinai, he appeared to the people as a fire atop the mountain. And when the temple was built in Jerusalem... God's presence filled it as a fire burning so brightly that the priests couldn't do their work until he toned it down for them. When David moved the ark of God's presence and the bearers stumbled, it said that the fire of God broke out and consumed the man who had dared to reach out to steady it, even though that man was not the proper one to do so. The, uh, the prophet Daniel, seeing the Ancient of Days in a vision, said that his throne was covered in flames. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews describes God as a, a consuming fire, suggesting that his love burns in the hearts of his followers as they live out the gospel. Today, we're going to look at God setting a controlled burn in the world and what that might mean to us. What we're doing here is we're working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, it was written by a doctor named Luke who wanted people to know the truth of the things that happened in the early days of the people following the risen Jesus. Luke's an interesting guy, and his writing style often seems more accessible to us because he was more of a Western thinker than many of the Bible's other authors. He also tended to write the way we expect modern reporters to. He, he would use two or more witnesses, and he would explain some of the details of ancient Near Eastern words or thought as he went along. The story of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to his disciples that they would receive power to take his message to Jerusalem, and then to Israel, and then to all the world, it begins here in Acts chapter 2. And if, if you've got one of the journals that we've been using here, You'll find it on page six. 
By the way, those of you who've requested these from me, they'll all be in the mail on Monday this week. Now, if you have your own Bible, you can find that in the New Testament, probably about 80% of the way through the book. But you can use the table of contents to find it quicker than just thumbing around at random. That's my tip of the day. Use the table of contents in your Bible. Don't just thumb around at random. Yeah. We are starting today in Acts chapter 2 at verse 1, right? Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I, I got to stop already. Sure. I tell you that Luke is good at giving us extra detail. And then he starts a section with no explanation whatsoever about what's going on. Because in his world, everyone knew and understood this. But let me explain it for us. Pentecost was a celebration. It dates back to the Exodus when God instructed his people to make a point of marking certain events and times of the year with big parties. What had become known as Pentecost was originally called the Feast of Weeks, and it took place 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which happened during Passover. It was a harvest festival. They, they both were. First Fruits was related to the barley harvest, and the early church actually had uh, said the resurrection of Jesus happened on that, that day of this uh, uh, first fruits. Um, it was the uh, first day of the week following Passover, which would have been the day of our Lord's resurrection. Seven weeks later, according to the instructions God gave Moses, seven weeks after this festival, uh, the people were to celebrate the Feast of Weeks which was the beginning of the wheat harvest. They would bring the first sheaf of wheat into the temple as a sacrifice to God and a prayer for him to bless the rest of the harvest. And since it happened exactly 50 days later, it came to be known simply by the Greek word that meant 50. Pentecost, or uh, Pentecoste, if you want to put an accent on that. So on the day of this feast, the Pentecost, the followers of the way of Jesus had gathered together. Now we know that this was a decent sized group of people, so they probably weren't all in the same room. It's possible it was only the 12, but it could be that some or all of the others were gathered nearby. It's not important to the story that Luke is telling, so like most ancient authors, he doesn't really elaborate on those details. Uh, we're going to uh, start over again here. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Uh, when... Uh, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness before Jesus had begun his public ministry. People came to him by the thousands. They wanted to hear him preach about the coming kingdom of God, and they, they would ask him to baptize them so that they could be part of it. Some of those who came thought that maybe John was this Messiah, the, the king of kings that God had promised would come. And all the gospel writers shared what John said in response to this. But here's how Luke puts it in chapter 3 of his biography of Jesus. He said, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. 
But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, most of you who are watching this probably know that the Salvation Army doesn't practice any kind of regular baptism as part of our religious observance. It's not that there's anything wrong with water baptism. It just isn't necessary to salvation, and it tends to create arguments about how and where that kind of thing is, is best. I'm all for water baptism as an outward symbol of the inward change brought about by someone's choice to declare their allegiance to Jesus as Savior and King. But the baptism we receive from Jesus is the one that matters. Douse me in the Holy Spirit and fire, Lord. Yeah. Now, water baptism, it was a way to present the same kind of message that putting on the Salvationist's uniform does. It's a way of declaring your belonging. And like so many things, this goes back to the Exodus. As the people followed Moses out of the country where they had been slaves, God sent a wind to hold back the waters of the Reed Sea so that they could cross over safely and be rescued from the Egyptian army pursuing them. What a lot of people don't realize is that the people with Moses weren't just the descendants of Jacob who had been called Israel. There were Egyptians who went with them as well. They were people who had been awed and inspired by the power of Israel's God. And when they came out on the other side of the sea, the people all together are referred to as Israel, this nation, God's people. The crossing of the sea is this powerful symbol of God rescuing those who trust him from certain death. And so as a last step to conversion to Judaism, the practice of being dunked in the water was used to show that someone was joining with the people in Exodus towards God. The old uh, person and the old allegiances were left behind in the water, and the new person who came up from beneath that water was devoted to God. Paul, writing to the believers in Corinth, described being baptized with the Holy Spirit this way, he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Later, he wrote to the faithful in Rome, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Well, wait a minute. Baptism is like death? Well, that makes sense if you're dunked in the river and you come back up, right? Because it's like being buried and then raised out of the tomb. But how does that work with this whole tongues of fire thing? Well, I guess that depends what you think a tongue of fire coming down from on high looks like. The word that's translated as tongue is glossa, meaning the tongue in your mouth. And metaphorically, it's used to refer to any manner or type of speech, which could lead to a particularly strange picture of this loud noise coming along with a heavenly tongue that licks all the believers' foreheads. Uh, that would be ridiculous, though. It's much more likely that this refers to fire licking out like a lizard's tongue in a sharp jab. Blech. 
the Bible refers to fire falling from heaven in quite a few places. And as a kid, I always kind of pictured it being like God using a divine flamethrower to send down this big orange plume. But that's not what the ancients would have been thinking. For them, fire from heaven always had one meaning. Lightning. Tongues of divided flame. Forks of lightning stabbing out. That blowing of a violent wind, hey, I don't know for sure, but that sounds a lot like thunder to me. Am I saying it couldn't have been those little candle flames that people usually think of when they read this passage? Nope. I don't know. We don't have video. Just Luke's story. And the appearance of the tongues of fire isn't what matters to him. What matters is what these flames from heaven do in those who receive them. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them... Each of us hears them in our own native language. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What's going on here? Well, short version, people who were from all those other places who spoke all different languages were all hearing what these disciples were saying as if it was their own language being spoken to them. But they could tell the people speaking were from Galilee. There was a stereotype about Galileans being uneducated. They seemed to have had a distinctive accent, kind of like being in the Deep South or the Upper Northeast or the Midwestern heartland here in America. Our, our cultural conditioning tells us the person speaking with that deep Southern accent is probably not a particle physicist, right? And that is a terrible and incorrect thing to think, but that's how stereotypes work, isn't it? Regardless of what they thought of the speakers, the fact was, all these people were hearing the message of Jesus spoken to them in their own language, and it had their attention. Why does Luke list out these places? Well, it's because it's a representation of all the places the disciples had been told by Jesus that they would be going. Remember, Jesus told them uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, here in Jerusalem, they are already speaking to people from all Judea and Samaria, and all the way to Rome, which was thought to represent all of the known world. They're getting the word out within minutes of receiving the Holy Spirit. Imagine what they'll be able to do when they get moving. Assuming, of course that they can overcome the skepticism of those who choose not to believe, even when the evidence is right there in their own ears. Verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them, and they said, they've had too much wine. 
literally this the uh, the Greek here it says they've been filled with new wine it's an accusation that they're drunk they're speaking gibberish people often refuse to believe things they don't understand we're foolish that way and though these folks are trying to mock what they don't understand what they said should remind us of other things Jesus said Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded an incident where Jesus was confronted about his teaching and lifestyle being so different from that that had come before. And his response was, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. That's a description of the spirit being poured into new believers, isn't it? In Christ, we are a new creation, a new wineskin into which the new wine of the Holy Spirit is poured. The old skin, our old life, can't contain it. New wine poured into old skins would cause them to burst as the fermentation process completed. And the old skins, they, they couldn't stretch to accommodate the power that was being generated by the changes in the juice. We can't fit the new spirit into our old way of life. The spirit in us prompts new growth and character while we mature as followers of Jesus. The spirit changes the very nature of who and what we are to be something more than we were before. And it charges us with God's power so that we can share his word, Jesus, with all of those around us until someday the whole world will either have accepted or rejected our place in his kingdom. It's our job to bring that fire into the tangled mess of dead wood and unhealthy undergrowth of the world. We are to help spark the controlled burn that will prepare the forest around us to survive the fires of judgment and thrive in new and exciting ways instead of being consumed. Those first recipients of that helper and advocate that Jesus promised and sent they had no idea how that spirit filling them would so completely change their lives and the whole world. But it did. And it still does. Now, while we aren't likely to see physical tongues of fire reaching down from heaven to jab us each in the head, God still sends his spirit to become one with those who declare their allegiance to Jesus. In... Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So, so it is that when we hear the good news that Jesus made a place for each of us in God's kingdom, and we choose to accept that place and follow him, then the Holy Spirit becomes a part of us, a, a spiritual sign that we are part of the family of God. And it, it's a growing power in us that we can use to change the world. And all you have to do to receive it is say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Show me the way. Show me the way.
Now, maybe you've never said that before, or maybe you have, but you've let your fears hold you back, or you've let your disappointment with the world take your eyes off of God. Well, hey, good news. God wants you with him. Shift your gaze away from those distractions and get back onto following his path instead. Give yourself back to Christ as he gave himself completely for you. And do it now. We're going to wrap up right there for today. In fact, let's pray. Abba Father, we want to be in your kingdom. We pledge ourselves to you fully and ask that you would continue to fill us with your spirit. Show us how to follow the way of Jesus and how to use your power to affect positive change in our lives and in our community and in the entire world. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, wherever you are, whoever or whatever you are, remember, you have nothing to fear because God is already there. He is there with you. He is wherever you're going. So go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. Hey, this offer's still open. You need one of these journals? You shoot me a note. Give me an address. I will send one to you with or without a donation. All right. Grace and peace. I'll see you all next time.